Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Indeed, God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we gather in this season of Lent to worship God in spirit and truth, whether here in the nave, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, Boston, Massachusetts, listening over the airwaves at WBUR 90.9 FM, listening over internet signals at WBUR.org, or listening to the podcast at bu.edu slash chapel. We worship God who forgives the sins of those who repent. Confession, repentance, mercy, forgiveness. These are the terms of atonement, and we remember them at the start of our Lenten atonement preaching series, beginning this week with Reverend Joanne Enquist, Boston University Lutheran Chaplain. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And, as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we reach for atonement, we are reminded that confidence in forgiveness must be balanced by confidence in our own sinfulness. To confess is to confess something. To repent is to repent of something. And to be forgiven is to be forgiven for something. To receive mercy is to stand in the presence of God in spite of. Let us confess the sins that make God's mercy so necessary for us that we might come into God's presence during the singing of the Kyrie.
We who come to worship God come to worship in spirit and truth. In our sinfulness, the truth is not in us. Having made confession in repentance, the mercy of God grants us forgiveness and we are restored to right relationship with God. Rest assured, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful, merciful, and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord.
Let us pray responsively verses from Psalm 91 with the antiphon. of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Now, beloved, rise up, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Dei, the reading of our gospel, and the singing of our hymn.
the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only to him. Um, Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord of Christ.
may be seated. Grace to you and peace in the name of Jesus, our brother, who embodies God's love for us and leads us into life. Amen. Taken into the wild at the Spirit's leading, Jesus, the newly baptized, fasts 40 days and nights, tempted by the devil before, before the threefold test begins. The Spirit, descendant like a dove, had alighted on him at the Jordan when John had drawn Jesus into waters and the voice declared him the beloved. But the next thing we know, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is led out. He's led out deep into Judean wilderness to desert landscape that spare terrain, location of choice in luring God's people to a deeper understanding of who they are. Like those before him whose sojourns are part of the family story, Jesus' time of solitude occasions not only struggle, but more basically, a stretching a breaking open, if you will, exposure to elements and the elemental. In the desert, as on Dakota Plains, about which Kathleen Norris so famously wrote, a person is forced, forced inward by the sparseness of what is outward and visible in all the land and sky. What seems stern and almost empty is merely open, a door into some simple and holy state. The territory of Jesus' testing is no small part of today's story as a whole. That fierce landscape quite literally grounds him It grounds Jesus out in the wilds, grounds him, in effect, beyond culture or class, in time and yet somehow beyond it. Far flung from the usual diversions by which we seek to transcend the distances of 2,000 years and some 6,000 miles. The evangelist Luke puts him there, on the margins, that we might see this second Adam in quintessential struggle of identity, teasing out relationship and living into vocation. As with the psalmist whose moisture was all dried up as by the heat of summer, so Jesus enters the time of his testing with Jordan waters but a distant memory, the voice of God's pleasure likely to be only a slight stirring amid the groans of hunger and thirst. Remember, Jesus is famished. Trust 
will be all in all as the tempter presses Jesus to exploit his equality with God. Famished, hollowed out, empty. That's what Jesus is when he's challenged. Turn those stones to bread and satisfy your hunger. Let angels bear you up. Claim the kingdoms of this world and all their store. It's tempting indeed. But remember the wilderness. The wilderness has stripped away more than food and drink, more than comfort and security, laying waste all illusions, emptying him of all he does not need. Jesus has been drawn to his truest self, his deep hungers fed by God's word in nurture, companionship, and strength that satisfies more than momentary fixes of food or fortune ever will. His truest self, with all else stripped away. Thus, Jesus counters devilish words with his deep trust. Over and again, the tempter presses, if you are the Son of God, if, if you are the Son of God. And yet it is because, it is because he is God's beloved that Jesus will live by and even live as the word that comes from God's mouth worshiping and serving only God, not putting the Lord to the test. Indeed, Jesus' answer, do not put the Lord your God to the test, it effectively becomes a cry, away with you, away with you, he seems to say, and thus the test is ended. Luke tells us the devil retreated temporarily, lying in wait for another opportunity. Each year, the church's Lenten journey begins with this narrative accompaniment to Jesus' wilderness testing. And while we have scrubbed them from sight, still it is with ash-smudged foreheads that we link ourselves all Lent long. We link ourselves to source and end. The dust we are, God's very own. Turning and returning, we walk a pilgrim way, rarely as contemplative or purgative as with a 40-day fast but carving out such patterns of discipline as will take us deeper into God's word, feeding us with more than bread for belly's cravings. Like Jesus out in the wilds, in our 40 days, we open spaces. We open spaces within our hearts in what we give up and let go of in Lent, we trim away the excesses as best we can 
so as to walk the road less burdened. It is a narrow way, a road that leads to awesome mystery, God's own for the world, given in love. And all the while, all the while the brutality of the cross casts a long shadow over Lent, so says a spiritual companion to my Lenten journey this year. By this, Jan Richardson means to acknowledge the starkness of the season and the difficulty one sometimes has in learning to see the beauty present in its starkness and the secrets in its terrain. And yet, she says, Lent is a season that invites us to explore its hollows and in so doing to explore our own to enter the sometimes stark spaces in our souls so that we may may prefer, prefer to avoid. The season challenges us to think of our own lives as vessels, to contemplate the cracks, to rub our fingers over the worn places, to ponder whether we are feeling full or empty, to question what we open ourselves to. Lent beckons us to ponder what we have shaped or bent our lives around, whether the shape of the container of our life offers freedom or confinement whether it opens us to the possibility of new life to which Jesus' empty tomb points. Now, what constitutes the stark spaces of wilderness will, of course, be different for each of us. Yet we should be clear, the landscape of our pilgrimage need not be that of a thirsty land. Topography is not the key. No, for us, the wild terrain might just as well be made of our horror, our horror in the face of natural disaster, such as we witness in Haiti's rubble, the painful truths of human tragedy blowing hard against us like strong, hot winds. And the sands, well, they could be of loneliness or despair. The great gulf of distance separating many of us from families and friends back home. Or maybe the pain of separation right here in Boston when relationships break apart and we're set on paths of our future once more alone. The night's bitter cold, it may come through poverty or plenty, from overwork or lack of work, from fatigue or even failure. Even as the day's heat might scorch because one feels misunderstood or maligned or because one has burdened another with the same. The point here is not so much the how, 
but the what. The point is the what of an opening, of openings to metaphorical landscapes and their contours, openings to companions on our journeys. The point lies in openings to the emptiness of bellies and hearts and tables, the emptiness of our own solutions and self-satisfactions. Friends, following the Spirit's lead into wild places often amounts to little other than opening ourselves, opening ourselves to the sometimes painful places of life. And God knows there are plenty of those places in a world such as ours. Tuesday's New York Times front page story, Above the Fold, it opened with the question, will anyone remember that 17-year-old Angelania Richel, a parentless high school student who wanted to be a fashion model, died of fright two days after the earthquake and ended up in a mass grave on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince. Will anyone remember? That was the question 23-year-old Emanuela was asking as she grieved her young cousin's death, noting that Angie is just one, just one of the nameless, faceless victims. Wrenchingly, poignantly, she added, and I hate that. To date, the quake is said to have killed 230,000 people. That seems to me to be a number simply incomprehensible to most of us, huh? To put it in some perspective, though, it's roughly equal to all the students, all the students attending each of the 77 colleges and universities in metropolitan Boston. In other terms, it's about 37% of the total population of our neighbors to the north in the great state of Vermont. 230,000 lives, and most of them buried unknown without memorials. This quake has been called an equal opportunity leveler with such mass deadliness that it erased the individuality of its victims. Ah yes, there is plenty of pain, plenty of pain in the wild spaces of our world to which we might open ourselves and our questions this season. Even closer to home, we must know as well that aftershocks continue wreaking devastation among our Haitian neighbors here. Our city is the third largest Haitian community in the United States, and Boston is trying Boston is trying to respond to the needs of the thousands here whose families back home struggle to stand in the aftermath of the quake. 
One remarkable response to those needs is a concert to be held this Friday at the Cathedral Church of St. Paul, downtown adjacent to the Park Street tea stop. At 7.30 on Friday evening, a bunch of students and graduates of our schools will host an effort that they're calling Singing in the Aftermath, a concert for Haiti, but also with, with the greater Boston Haitian community. Financial contributions will help support the extraordinary relief work of Partners in Health, and canned goods there collected will restock the nearly empty shelves of local food pantries serving the Haitians. A nice discipline, I think, to add to Lent's rounds. But of course, attending to the suffering from this one moment, it is of course only one way, only one way to open ourselves to the painful places, the spare terrain of life. Surely, right here, right here, even within our very selves, here also are great griefs to bear, as each of us fails to live as intended. Whether those disappointments come in coursework or relationships, in tackling the list of things to do in jobs or lack of living from our core values. Within us, there is failing and frailty. Nevertheless, the point is, I think, that we should not turn away from these. The gift of Lent, if you will, is a turning back to hold them in the presence of God and to know our lives in the mystery of God's love. Indeed, the reality of our struggles both outward in the world and inward, both globally and locally, the reality of our struggles is part and parcel of why Lent stands to offer us more than challenges to our willpower. Going into the wild places of a Lenten pilgrimage asks us more deeply to explore the very marrow of our being. As it did with Jesus in his 40 days apart, Lent stretches before us, pressing us to look at what ultimately satisfies, what gives us strength, what holds us safe. Just so, however and wherever we find ourselves as we walk the pilgrim way of Lent, I pray each of us finds what we need to face the fierce landscapes. In the emptying and refilling, in the turning and returning, may God's own Holy Spirit be among us as energy for life. May it lead us to the places we need to go and strengthen us for all the testing ahead. Throughout, may the Lenten desert landscape be seen less as a place of temptation and terror and more as a kind of proving ground, a place where emptying creates room enough
to receive all God offers us. Thus, as with the one who has gone ahead of us, Jesus, our brother, with whose cross we have been signed, thus we would come through these 40 days to ever deeper understandings of who we are and how graciously God provides all that we need, grace upon grace upon grace. Dear friends, companions on the way, traveling mercies I bid you, may we all keep a holy Lent out in the wilds. Amen. As we prepare to respond to the call to worship, you are invited to stand, kneel, come to the altar, respond in the way that is with your tradition. The choir will lead us in the singing of Lead Me, Lord, as we begin this call to prayer. enter this space as a people desiring to be made whole. Tests are not just for the students. They feel like an everyday part of the everyday life. Some of the tests, they are overwhelming. They are the Hades, the Katrinas, the 9-11s that come along and demand a response in thought word, and deed. And then, and then, there are the everyday tests that challenge us in a different way. The challenge to remember kindness in the midst of gridlock traffic. The challenge to forgive a mistake in ourselves as much as in others. The challenge to remember time is a gift instead of a natural resource to master. Oh God, we need you now. When answers just don't seem to come, help us find comfort through you, the greatest mystery of all. Shine your light on us and transform our fractured selves into prismatic beauty that is unmistakable and irresistible. We ask this for the foretaste of the kingdom to come, your kingdom here on earth. Amen.
And now, as children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you to the nave of Marsh Chapel this morning and give thanks to the Reverend Joanne Enquist for bringing the word to us this morning. I would invite you here in the nave to put your name and contact information on the red pads along the center aisle of each pew and pass them along to your neighbors so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one, each, one another better throughout the week and would point you to the website, bu.edu slash chapel, for ongoing activities and events here at Marsh Chapel. Most especially this week, I'd want to point you in the bulletin uh, an entire page, noting our concert this coming Saturday, Judas Maccabeus uh, Handel's Oratorio, performed by the Marsh Chapel Choir and Collegium, and soloist with uh, Dr. Jarrett conducting. And here to say a bit more is he himself. Good morning, everyone. For many years now, uh, we have alternated in the spring with a Handel Oratorio and or uh, a Bach Passion. And in 2006, we performed Saul, two years later, Solomon, and now Judas Maccabeus, uh, great uh, oratorios uh, in the Handelian tradition. The concert is at 7.30 Saturday, and we hope that you will all be there. The tickets are available from a choral scholar uh, uh, in the narthex after the service. They're $10 for general admission, and they're free if you're a student, so no excuse not to come. 
7.30 on Saturday. Uh, the Collegium will be here to lead us, choral scholars, uh, singing the solos. It's a wonderful piece if you haven't heard it before, and it commemorates uh, Judas Maccabeus' victories, uh, which, which mark the occasion of the purification of the temple, which is now celebrated in the Feast of Hanukkah. Please come Saturday. Thank you, Scott. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
God, we thank you for these blessings, praying only that you will help us to stay faithful to the gospel and help us work out your purpose so that we may in turn be a blessing to the world. In your holy name we pray. Amen. go forth for God. Go to the world in peace, love, strength, and joy. And may God, who is our source and end, be your companion on the way. In Jesus, our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is energy for life, in the name of God, Creator, Word, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.